0: So my philosophy on this is that there's always more fish in the sea. If you want more money than I can pay you, Uh, I'm moving on and buying something else. You, on the (laughs) other hand, are stuck with your property and your $8 million yield maintenance penalty, uh, and that's your problem. But what you cannot do is you cannot transfer your problem to me and ask me to solve it for
1: you. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. This is a show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth by investing in Main Street, investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital. And today, we're getting so many lessons from Brian. Brian is a successful real estate investor who's been in the business for 31, almost 32 years at this point. He's a real estate syndicator that's been in that business for quite a while. And he recently, somewhat recently, you know, recent history, released a book for passive real estate investors on through Bigger Pockets through their book uh, publishing platform. It's very popular, has been a very successful book, and it offers a lot of value to passive investors like you or like those, some of you out there. So today we talk about some of the lessons that he learned for himself through writing that book. Because in my opinion. One of the best ways to learn something is actually to teach it to others. Even if you already know it, you can cement those things in your mind and learn new things that you maybe didn't realize you knew by teaching it to others and uncover things that you didn't know and and learn more. So we're talking about that today and we're talking about many other lessons that he's learned through over 31 years and over buying over half a billion dollars in real estate We're picking up so many lessons today that he's learned in the space, how things have changed or maybe not changed as a result of COVID. Brian and I saw each other at a conference uh, just a couple months before uh, coronavirus pandemic hit. He gave a great talk on underwriting deals at that time, how to underwrite multifamily properties looking into the future as a conservative underwriter. So we talk about how things have changed for him or maybe not changed. You have to stay tuned. Uh, tuned in to find out, in that regard, if he's changed any of his underwriting techniques or not, and why. Okay, so stay tuned. You're going to learn why. There's so many great lessons in this interview. It was great to talk with Brian again. If you're on Bigger Pockets or you're in the Bigger Pockets universe, then look him up. Look up his book. If you're not. In that universe, and you want to be a passive syndication investor, first listen to this interview and then go pick up a copy of his book, The Hands Off Investor. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I want to thank you for tuning in today. If you're using the Apple Podcast platform, please take a quick second, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast five stars if you don't mind. That's very much appreciated. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us grow in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always real with you guys. It helps me feel good because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us and our speakers and all of the rest of the listeners out there. So happy to have you here with us today. No matter what podcast app you're using, if you haven't yet, take a quick second, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit that subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital. He's got over 31 years experience as a real estate investor. He's bought over half a billion, billion with a B, dollars in real estate. He recently released a book for passive syndication investors. So today... In the relatively limited amount of time we've got with him, I'm trying to extract all these lessons, both from the broader perspective and what has changed or maybe not changed for him recently with the coronavirus pandemic. So there's so much in here. You're going to learn a lot today. So without any further ado, here we go with Brian Burke. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. Hey, it's great talking with you again. We uh, got to talk face to face a couple of years ago now, before COVID, when we when we could actually do things in person, it seems like a, a distant memory now. But for our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about what you do, and then we'll dive into what we're going to discuss today? Yeah, it
0: was fun, and I, it's hard to believe it's been that long since we saw each other, Taylor. But time flies, even in amidst a pandemic, I guess. Yep. So. Uh, Uh, Yeah, you know, I'm the president and CEO of Praxis Capital, and uh, I've been investing in real estate for a little over 31 or 32 years now. About 20 years ago, I I shifted some of my focus into the multifamily. Previous to that, I was just doing single family fix and flip. And then uh, after a few years of uh, doing both uh, multifamily and fix and flip, uh, I, I changed the focus of my business even more into multifamily and less on the single family resi side. So in that 32 years, I've bought, fixed, and resold about 750 properties, about I don't know, 700 plus of those were single family homes, but uh, about 3000 multifamily apartment units and growing uh, all across the country. I've probably owned real estate in I don't know, six or seven states now. So it's been a a good a good career that I feel like I've got to do it all over again. I got another 31
1: years left of me, uh, I hope. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And you Relatively recently, released a book with Bigger Pockets on passive investing. And can you tell us a bit a bit about the book, and then I have some questions about your experience in, in writing the book. Yeah, I had a uh, a friend of mine that uh,
0: was uh, probably going to be set for life, uh, and did a ten thirty one exchange and invested the proceeds from that ten thirty one exchange into a passive real estate offering in a. Um, uh, a TIC, a tick investment. And this was I don't know, about 10 years ago in the right way. And I did some research and found that lo and behold, there was no real source for that information. Uh, so I decided that, uh, if I could save one person from making the same mistake, my friend did then writing a 350 page manifesto on how to do this, <laughs> right. was probably going to be worth it. <laughs>
1: Awesome, and I I certainly appreciate that uh, that you put that out there because you're right there. There wasn't anything before, and you know that's what I'm trying to do with this show. But alas, I don't have a book. But what I wanted to ask you, at least, get started about writing the book are things that if there's anything you learned along the way. I mean, you've got this extensive experience as a real estate investor, but you know, I found it more broadly. We learn best when we teach things to other people. And I'm curious if there's anything that as you're writing the book that you maybe didn't know or or didn't quite understand that you got a better understanding of through writing the book.
0: Yeah, you know, probably 325 of this 350 pages is a brain dump, taking 30, 31 <laughs> years of real estate investment experience and talking to hundreds of investors and just kind of blurting out everything I know. Uh, but of course, you know, I had to lay some, uh, some technical foundation alongside that. And it, uh, part of the technical foundation of passive investing is the legal framework uh, that makes up uh, the entity structures and, and passive investing rules and you know, Reg D and all these other things. So I did some really deep research on that as part of this uh, book research. And, and one of the things I, uh, that uh, I learned, which uh, was a commonly uh, repeated uh, belief uh, is that uh, you have to have a pre-existing relationship with the sponsor that is uh, that is offering these securities if you're not an accredited investor. So an unaccredited investor has to have a pre-existing relationship with the sponsor in order to invest. An accredited investor does not necessarily have to have a pre-existing relationship And, you know, you read that all the time. You hear people say it all the time. And uh, of course, you know, it it, uh, everything that you read and see is gospel. Right. And, um, you know, it's completely untrue. The whole thing is just bunk. Uh, And I learned that through my extensive research and trying to understand the legal framework. So I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, that is interesting because that's something that I have certainly heard repeatedly. And shoot, I'm almost certain that I've said that before. I'm not 100 percent certain that I've said that before. What does that, what does that really mean? I guess, how is our understanding wrong in that way? It means you're going to jail, Taylor. You told <laughs> people the wrong thing.
0: How dare you give people misinformation? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> well, you news. know, uh, yeah, right. Fake news. Yep. So, you know, the, um, the distinction is, so So basically where this comes from is the, this concept of a pre-existing relationship comes out of Reg D, uh, Rule 506B, that says that you can raise money uh, from uh, accredited investors or from up to 35 non-accredited investors. Uh, So long as they have sophistication and knowledge of the investment they're investing in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then somewhere, somehow or another, this commonly held belief of a pre-existing relationship came into play. Well, really what, what 506B is saying is it's saying that, you know, you can raise money from people, but you cannot... Advertise. You cannot have a general solicitation. You can't put a billboard up on the freeway. You can't, uh, you know, create a website with Google AdWords that say "Invest in this offering" uh, without violating uh, the provisions of of um, the securities laws. Now the uh, the the burden uh, the the burden here is that. You want to be able to show that the investors that invested did not come from a a, a general solicitation. And so one of the most commonly used ways to show that is to show that you had a pre-existing relationship. Like, no, this guy didn't come from a billboard on the freeway. He came because he's my brother-in-law's best friend from high school. And we know each other all the way since kindergarten. And that's why he invested in this deal. Uh, that would show that they didn't come to you by virtue of a general solicitation. So a pre-existing relationship is one way to uh, prove there was that they didn't come to you from a general solicitation, but it's not the only way to prove that they came from a general solicitation. Uh, but it is probably the easiest way. Now, if, if there's other ways that you can establish that they did not come to you via a general solicitation, uh, then you can still... Uh, comply with the framework uh, of the regulations by uh, offering securities to a non-accredited
1: investor uh, without general solicitation. You just have to be able to show that where they came from. Interesting. So if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, it sounds like if I have, you know, Mike investor and he's already in my ecosystem, I have a relationship with him. I send him a deal, and then he he's interested, not interested, whatever. And without my saying anything to him to this effect, he takes it to his brother, who I don't know, and says who, who is also not accredited, and says, "Hey, check this out." And his brother Bob says, "Oh, I'm really interested in that deal," and reaches out and says, um, "You know, I'm interested. I'm Mike's brother. You didn't, you know, solicit me." Is that kind of what you're getting at? That that you how you could establish that? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. And, and you know, to uh,
0: to roll this all up, the, uh, the smartest thing for anybody to do that's raising money is to get legal advice from their counsel,
1: 100. Uh,
0: because everybody's legal counsel is going to have a different level of tolerance as to what they think they're uh, uh, going to be comfortable having their client out there doing. So before you uh, take uh, your investor's friend's money, uh, talk to your uh, lawyer about that first before you make that decision. But you're on the right track. I mean, what I'm saying is that there are situations where uh, there could be someone out there that you don't have a relationship with uh, who could make an investment in your offering under the right set of circumstances as long as you can prove if you were ever asked that they did not come into this investment by virtue of some type of general solicitation. Now, where this gets tricky is what's the definition of a general solicitation, and how uh, loose or tight uh, are you with that definition? So could you say that the email that you sent to your investor was a general solicitation to your investor, uh, and then that subsequently resulted in him sharing it with somebody else, uh, so could it be fruits of the poisonous tree? Uh, I don't necessarily think so. But of course, you know, this is where your legal counsel comes into play because they are there to keep you out of jail. And let's remember, as an investment sponsor, uh, there's more than civil liability at, at play here. Uh, investment sponsors can be criminally liable if they violate the rules. So it's just very important that you get legal advice from your counsel. But but do know that uh, there can be exceptions to some of these widely held common beliefs. You just have to dig deep enough to find them and have counsel
1: that's comfortable with it. Nice, I appreciate that. And, and that is definitely very important to talk with your lawyers. Now, most of our uh, listeners here are gonna be more on the passive investing side. They're gonna be someone who, if they haven't read your book yet, which I know many of them have, but not all of them, They probably should if they want to invest in syndications. And, you know, I think it's a very cautionary tale from the beginning about your friend who did that 1031 into a tenant in common and went bust and I guess had to keep working their day job. But I I suppose I, I wonder if there are any other like cautionary tales or major stumbling blocks that you have come across that have caused, you know, other passive investors to lose big. In, in situations where they could have avoided it? Well, I think uh, people have a tendency
0: to play this game in reverse. And the biggest uh, red, how that sponsor conducts themselves. After you've found uh, a few sponsors that kind of pass all of your tests, then instead of going out looking for deals, you're just waiting for them to bring you one. And, and that's really the way you should be approaching this business as a passive investor. So the biggest mistake people make is they skip the step of spending all their time doing due diligence on the sponsor and instead focus all their time on focusing on the real estate. And they're like, well, you know, what's the cap rate and what's this and what's the that and what's the debt service coverage ratio? And they think that all these numbers are going to protect them. Uh, but really, the biggest risk that people are adding to their investment portfolio when they invest passively is the sponsor. Uh, the real estate is a risk whether you invest directly uh, or in a passive offering, but the sponsor is a new risk. You've gotta underwrite that risk if you wanna avoid making a big
1: mistake. Nice, I, I that is a, a fantastic point. I've had folks come to me in that way and, and ask questions like that, like looking for deals. I think there is, maybe an over-reliance on the numbers of the underwriting, which are really just numbers on a page until it's all said and done and you sell the property, hopefully at a profit. It's just all theoretical. And this this brings to mind, if we're rewinding the clock back to when pandemics didn't happen, we didn't have pandemics. This is the modern era. We don't get pandemics all the way back into, uh, what, 2019 when we were at that conference. You gave a fantastic talk on underwriting and looking into the future for multifamily deals. And especially in light of what you're saying about some of the over-reliance on what's the cap rate, what's the debt service coverage ratio, I still want to bring up, how has your underwriting changed, if at all, as a result of COVID? I mean, we've had all these eviction moratoriums, which seem like they're going to go on indefinitely, no matter what the Supreme Court says. So what are you doing about it in your math?
0: Well, we haven't changed much. Uh, I've always been accused of being overly conservative. I think my acquisitions team calls me the Grim Reaper. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we we've uh, after surviving the last great financial collapse, which is probably the worst real estate collision we'll ever see in our lifetimes, and and managing to come out the other side of that. Uh, obviously, I learned a lot of lessons that have helped to bring me to the point where I'm still here doing this, right? So I've already changed, I changed my underwriting 15 years ago. Uh, That's when I, or or 13 years ago, you know, somewhere back then, that's when I made my shift. So when COVID happened, it was kind of like, eh, this is what I've been preaching all along. This is the (laughs) stuff I've been telling everybody else to be ready for. And here it is. Well, the, the only thing, there was only one caveat, is that everything I told people to beware of and underwrite like this because that could happen didn't really happen? I mean, you know, there nothing really happened with COVID. You know, there was uh, uh, there was this weird uh, two sets of different real estate performance markets where you had like class A and B, eh? Pandemic? What pandemic? And then you have class C and D that's like uh, you know, hey, does anybody know the number for a collection agency? <laughs> <laughs> And and so that's kind of how the the real estate market got ended up getting split. And so, uh, you know, we had some properties that were just getting stomped on. And then we had others that were like month over month record high collections. And no amount of underwriting would have done anything for for that. It wouldn't no amount of underwriting could have predicted which of those properties were going to perform the way that they did in either direction. So all you can do when you're underwriting is kind of be uh, planning for safety, uh, but the real safety comes from the way you finance the property. And you just don't want to get too far over your skis because that's where you get into the
1: most trouble. And I try to avoid doing that. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen um, investors lose properties as a result of financing and, and not understanding Things like prepayment penalties, particularly in markets where rates are declining, things like that. Can you be a little more specific about what you mean by being careful with your financing and not getting over your skis? Does that just mean putting a lot of money down? Because then you're kind of impacting your return. So what do you mean by that? Well, uh, you're right
0: that everything you just said was, was absolutely true. And and so... Hey, that made when, my day. Yeah, my, I know. Yeah. My day's well, made here. Yeah, I guess I don't need to say anything. You said it all. Uh, <laughs> So, so let's let's talk about uh, financing because this is the this is the biggest the biggest issue is people will finance properties incorrectly in several different ways. One of the common things that I see, one of the big mistakes, is people finance a short term hold with long term debt. And and the way that you'll see this come up is you'll see this where you have somebody that's like, okay, we're going to uh, fix up some units. And then we're going to sell the property in you know two or three years. And they go get 10-year fixed rate financing. So now you've got this huge yield maintenance penalty that's hanging over your head. And if rates decline, that number gets bigger. We bought a property recently, uh, a couple of years ago, I guess it was. The uh, The seller had to pay a million and a half dollars to their lender just to pay off the loan. And that was a yield maintenance penalty. We have another deal right now. We, we were trying to negotiate an acquisition. The seller wants to net a certain number of dollars in order to make the transaction financially feasible for them, but they have an $8.5 million yield maintenance prepayment penalty. And when you add that on, the property doesn't pencil. They're going to have to eat that themselves. They can't ask me to eat it and have it still perform. So being careful about matching the type of debt you're using to the, the time that you intend to hold it is one. But when you said something about you've seen people lose properties in foreclosure, I've more than seen it. I'm on the, other end of it, uh, I've out of the 750 properties I've bought, 700 of those were probably foreclosed on. Wow! Uh, because uh, we, I was buying properties at the courthouse steps at foreclosure sales uh, heavily during the economic downturn. There were times we were buying three houses a day uh, on the courthouse steps, and I'm talking about properties that are that were worth three or $400,000 that had five, six, seven hundred thousand $700,000 in debt on them. And when the property value fell and then you add in all that defaulted interest and foreclosure fees, they were way over their head. I've, I've bought an apartment complex one time that for uh, less than half of the amount of the loan, uh, in fact, I've done that twice, and uh, I've bought several apartment complexes, REO, from the bank after they foreclosed on them. And so by far, the, the people that were losing these properties to foreclosure were ones who had financed too much. They took out too much debt. So to your point about, well, if you put down more money, you'll have less debt, but now you impact your return. My answer to that is yes, but so what? Uh, you know, what investors need to think about is the risk adjusted return that they're they're seeking to achieve. That's the key. It's not about returns. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll get this all the time. People call, you know, what are the returns? Well, what else do you want to know? Because if I tell you what the return is, it's not going to answer any questions for you. Uh, what the real question is, is how much risk am I taking and what is the return? And is that worth it to me? And so if I tell you that the return is 12% or I tell you the return is 20%, which one are you going to pick? Well, a lot of people would pick the 20% one. Well, then if I told you the 12% return deal, we have uh, 60% leverage. But on the 20% return deal, we have 90% leverage. <laughs> uh, you know, Now, when you kind of factor that in, you go, hmm, I heard this guy once on a podcast talking about how all the over-leveraged people were the ones that went in foreclosure. Your return could easily be zero or negative, where you could lose all of your money on that 20% IRR, and you're a lot less likely for that to happen on the 12% deal that has low leverage, because if something happens bad in the market, the guy with low leverage can sit back and wait. And that's a luxury that people that have too much leverage can't do. They have a, a, a note payment burning a hole in their pocket, that lender will be knocking on their door, whether
1: they're getting enough income to cover that debt service or not. That is the the I guess the double edged sword of uh, <laughs> of taking out debt on these properties. Now, I do wonder this this again happened to me um, when someone reaches out to you, especially with an apartment complex. Again, this is a situation that happened somewhat recently. Somebody reached out and said, "Hey, we're in a tough spot. We have a huge yield maintenance penalty, but they're not being realistic with the price." Like you were referencing, this person has a huge yield maintenance penalty, and you're not going to eat it. So, how do you handle that? follow up till you know eventually when they're really staring at foreclosure maybe they'll get to the point where they kind of become reasonable and they just want to get out of it i mean have you been able to navigate that or do the most people just say ah, i'm riding this the whole way you know to the bank well a yield
0: maintenance penalty doesn't necessarily mean that they're in distress Uh, So, you know, their payments could be low enough. Their leverage point could be low enough. They could own the property for another 10 years, and that's just fine. If they really want to sell, uh, they have to be realistic on the price and meet the market. If they really need to sell, then they must meet the market. They have no choice. (laughs) Uh, But if it's like, hey, you know, yeah, we'll take an offer now. Uh, We'd love to get out of it. Uh, or we'll sit and we'll wait for this yield maintenance to bleed off. And it will over time, it will bleed off. Either rates will go up or time will just bleed the yield maintenance penalty away. So my philosophy on this is that there's always more fish in the sea. If you want more money than I can pay you, uh, I'm moving on and buying something else. (laughs) You, on the other hand, are stuck with your property and your $8 million yield maintenance penalty. uh, And that's your problem. But what you cannot do is you cannot transfer your problem to me and ask me to solve it for you. All I can do is pay you market value. And so uh, the discipline, I think, is one of the most important things that any buyer can have because it's easy to get wrapped up and I got to find a way
1: to make this deal work uh, when in reality you don't. Yeah. So I guess that the yield maintenance penalty uh, is really only relevant if the folks are in other distress and they're bleeding cash, They they kind of need to sell, but they've also got this big penalty looming over their heads if they do sell. Otherwise, just sit on the property and wait for it to go away one way or another. That's a
0: terrible position to be in. I mean, I could just imagine no worse spot than being in a property that is bleeding cash and you can't get out of it because your yield maintenance throws you upside down. And again, this is why I go back to preaching this same story about make sure your financing and your business plan are in alignment with one another, and that you're underwriting carefully and not taking on too much debt. If you're if you're leveraging reasonably, chances are you shouldn't find yourself in a position where the property is bleeding cash, and you can't hang on. Uh, But if you leverage too much. And you did that with long-term fixed rate financing, man, that can be a really, you've painted yourself into a corner and you know all you can wait
1: for is the paint to dry and, and hope that you don't <laughs> starve to death while you're waiting for that to happen. Ouch. I mean, that is one of the, I think, somewhat counterintuitive things about commercial real estate financing, though, is folks think, you know, okay, I'm buying a single family house. I get, you know, 30 year mortgage at a fixed rate. That's a pretty good deal. You're not probably going to have any prepayment penalty or anything like that. But when you get into the commercial space, the lender is still going to want their money and you're going to be the one that has to pay it if you sign terms like that. Well, remember, the
0: lender is making you a loan. But then they're turning around and they're selling that debt off somewhere else. They're securitizing it or whatever. And so they're guaranteeing their bondholders that they're going to get a certain rate of return. Now on a residential mortgage that's a hundred grand and it's pooled in with billions and billions and billions of dollars of other residential mortgages at a hundred grand. Uh, if you pay off, it doesn't even move the needle. But if you're borrowing $20 million on a multifamily uh, play, that $20 million moves the needle on that bond performance. And they absolutely have to make sure that uh, that they're performing for their investors. So it's this cascading effect where you know, everybody has to be taken care of. And that's why those uh, yield maintenance penalties are in there. And uh, you, know, you just have to you know, decide for yourself whether that's worth it. I mean, I I tend to prefer floating rate debt where I'm taking the risk of interest rate movement. I'm not transferring that risk to the lender, which you are doing in a fixed rate environment, but I'm eliminating yield maintenance risk. Uh, I can get out of my debt any time I want and just pay a 1% exit fee. To me, that's pretty reasonable. And in exchange for accepting some interest rate risk that I can buy a cap for, by the way, uh, I'm okay with that. And I've got a I got a whole paragraph or paragraph (laughs) that doesn't sound like much. I got a whole chapter on financing in the book that describes all the various aspects of commercial real estate finance and where the hidden gremlins are and what's going to come up to bite you and a comparative analysis of each of these modes of finance that you can see for yourself which of the different options are gonna be more suitable you know, in any given uh, investment thesis.
1: Nice, awesome. Well, I appreciate all of those insights. Right now, we're gonna take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate, that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called GroundFloor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry, they make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the Ground Floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com groundfloor ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Brian. I've got three questions. I asked every guest on the show. Are you ready?
0: Yeah, hit me up.
1: Great. First one: What is the best investment you ever made, other than in your education?
0: Uh, well, I don't know. The thing that comes
1: to me is the most
0: recent sale. Uh, we just sold this one property uh, for sixty-two million dollars that we just bought for forty million two years ago. I think that was a whoa. That was a pretty decent investment. I think. Uh, and it was an interesting play because I bought two properties next door to each other from two different sellers represented by two different brokers, combined them into one property, uh, run out of one office with one staff, which saved about three hundred thousand dollars in annual expenses, which awesome. gave it an immediate like six million dollar or eight million dollar boost in value, and then was able to bring the rents up substantially after renovating some units. So it was a that was, a, that was a pretty
1: decent play. Why not refi, just you know, return the cash and, and sit on it for a while, You know, just white cashing out? Oh, why not take 15 million while the market's <laughs> there to give it
0: to you? <laughs> That's fair. Uh, I say that you can never go broke making money. And why not see, there are times to take chips off the table and seal in your gains. Otherwise you're just taking on more debt uh, and you're hoping that the market will continue to do whatever it did. And ultimately I would make, a lower rate of return for my investors by deploying that strategy because i got the most lift in value in the shortest amount of time so if i can bring the value up 20 million in 2 years i guarantee you 100% i cannot do that again and do <laughs> another 20 million in another 2 years and in fact on a percentage basis i'd have to do about 30 million in 2 years in order to repeat the performance uh, so if if i can do 20 million in 2 and 25 million and five, which one's really better?
1: That's true. That is a good point. That well taken, well taken. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Well, you said not to uh, include my education
0: on the best investment question, but you didn't exclude that. From the worst investment, Busted. so I'll, so I'm going to I'm going to give you an answer that's going to cover both. Uh, <laughs> the worst investment I ever made was the best investment I ever made in my education, and that was I bought a property in 2008 for half of what the guy before me paid for it. Uh, so I thought that was brilliant, but unfortunately, it was about six months before the worst of the Great Financial Collapse oh, came along and destroyed the economy. So right after. Uh, I closed escrow. I got the occupancy from 80% to 99%, and that lasted for about a week. Uh, And then the whole world came to a collapse uh, when Bear Stearns went down and Goldman, all that stuff. Everybody was losing jobs left and right, and people were vacating my apartments left and right. And then I got to this point where I was joking that half the units were empty and the other half weren't paying. And uh, that was kind of a joke, but it was still you know, kind of somewhat true. And I got the property to where finally at one point, It was making just enough money to pay the expenses, but no money left over for debt service. And so I thought, no problem. I'll just dip into my own pocket. I'll make the loan payment. Surely by next month, we'll have the occupancy back up, et cetera, et cetera. Well, guess what? That didn't happen. So the next month, another 15 grand comes out of my pocket to make the loan payment. The following month, another 15 grand comes out of my pocket to make the loan payment. (laughs) That repeated itself for about three years. Oh, man. Uh, I made this loan payment out of my own pocket and uh and finally uh you know the market came around and the economy started to improve and occupancy came back up and it began to barely cash flow and finally I sold the property and I was able to get enough for it to get all the money I put in to to keep it afloat I got all that back I got uh, all my investors all of their money back and I even got them a little bit of a profit which I think was a huge win considering a lot of other guys I knew in that same situation were handing the keys over to their bank but to me, that was the biggest lesson I could learn on over leverage. And this was a situation where, yes, I paid half what the guy before me paid. And I was I was um, uh, what do they call that? You know, when you uh, when you have an alcoholic and somebody hands them a drink, uh, that that was the situation I was in uh, the uh, codependency. And the yeah. lender was my codependent. They said, look, We'll give you a hundred percent financing on this property. Just take it off our hands. And I'm like, this. I read about this in a book. This is what everybody's <laughs> supposed to do. You're supposed to get in with no money down. This is how real estate investing works. This is the best thing ever. All I have to do is come up with the money to do the renovations, and I'm golden. I'm going to make a killing for uh, for all my investors. Well, guess what? That didn't happen that way. And so I learned the hard way, uh, not by foreclosure, but by taking money out of my pocket every month why taking on too much debt is a big hazard in this business. And that was the worst investment I ever made, but it was the best lesson I ever could have learned. Had that not happened to me, I would not be where I am today. Uh, So knock
1: on wood, it was also uh, maybe even the best investment I ever made. Who knows? Wow. Wow that is quite the lesson. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important lesson
0: is that you always have to put your investors in first place. My business is entirely driven by capital Uh, buying real estate is a capital intensive business. In order to do so, I have to have a lot of investors that trust me. And the only way they're going to trust me is if I don't let them down. And so the most important thing you can do in this business is to put them first place. And the case in point was that deal I just told you about my worst deal. Why did I take 15 grand out of my pocket to pay the monthly mortgage payment? Well, uh, if I didn't, I'd have a foreclosure on my record and I have 100% investor loss. Well, here I am you know, 31 years into this business, 20 years of it with investor money. I've never lost a nickel of investor principle. And being able to say that is enormously important for the growth of my business. And so doing right by your investors, while it's hard, it's not the easy way out when things are going rough uh when things turn around, that is going to be the one thing that you get to hold on to that's going to fuel your growth in this business as an investment sponsor. and it will build trust in your investors and that is more is worth more than anything.
1: Wow. Well, Brian, thank you for joining us today. It's been great reconnecting with you and I hope to see you at an in-person event when the world gets back to normal in, I don't know, 2025 or whatever. But uh, for folks out there who want to track you down, want to find you on the internet, want to find your book or anything like that, where can they find you? Got to go to a few places. You can find me at
0: praxcap.com. It's our company website. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. You can find me on Instagram at Investor Brian Burke. You can find the
1: book at biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book. Nice. Well, thank you for joining us once again. Everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, if you don't mind. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always real with you guys. It helps me feel good because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.